about Fly Fishing Internet Radio, your source for learning more about fly fishing in cold water, warm water, and salt water. Hello, I'm Roger Maves, your host for tonight's show. On this broadcast, we'll be featuring Bob Mallard, and he'll be answering your questions on Fly Fishing Maine. This show will be 90 minutes in length, and we're broadcasting live over the Internet. If you'd like to ask Bob a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use that Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. And while you're there, make sure you sign up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Just fill out the form on the right side of our homepage, and we'll let you know when the next live show will be. This broadcast is being recorded and will be available for playback on our website about 48 hours after the show ends. You can also find it on any of the podcast distribution sites like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. So if you have to leave early, you can return to our website or any of the podcast platforms at your convenience and listen to the recording at any time. If you're out and about on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, we'd sure appreciate it if you'd share our podcast. And when you do, use hashtag AskAboutFlyFishing and also hashtag FlyFishing. In fact, if you have a moment, do it right now while you're listening to the show. We'd really appreciate it. The content of this broadcast is copyrighted and is the property of the Knowledge Group, Inc., doing businesses ask about fly fishing. When we return, we'll be talking with Bob Mallard about fly fishing Maine. Whether you want to catch your first permit in Belize, tame a giant tarpon in the Florida Keys, or wrestle a mint-bright Atlantic salmon in eastern Canada, Gills Fly Fishing International's well-traveled booking team has the knowledge to make it happen. They consider trust to be the single most important aspect of their work. They only book locations that they know, meaning proven operations providing the right mix of great fishing, comfortable accommodation, and high integrity. Get in touch today to start planning your next fly fishing adventure. Visit flyfishinginternational.com or call them at 780-665-4943. Again, that's flyfishinginternational.com or call them at 780-665-4943. Before we introduce Bob, I'd like to let you know about the great prizes we have to give away tonight. For a drawing tonight, we'll be giving away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International and a one-year membership to Trout Unlimited. Now, if you haven't registered yet for the drawing, you can do so now. Just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and look for the link under Bob's section that says register for our free drawing. Click on that link and fill out the form, and we'll announce the winners at the end of the show. We'll also be giving away a copy of Bob's latest book, Fly Fishing Maine, courtesy of Stackpole Books. And to find out more about Stackpole Books, go to stackpolebooks.com. You'll also find Bob's most recent book, Fly Fishing Maine, on the homepage of our website in the right-hand column. So you can click on that and get your copy there if you don't win tonight. Now, here's how you can win. You must be the first person to answer the question we ask at the end of the show. The question will be about something we talk about during the show, you must submit your answer along with your name and location using that text box on our homepage. It's the same one that you use to ask questions through during the show. So listen closely, take lots of notes, pay attention, and type fast, and maybe you'll win Bob's book, Fly Fishing Me. Our guest tonight is Bob Mallard. Bob has fly fished for over 40 years. He is a former fly shop owner and a registered Maine fishing guide. Bob is a blogger, writer, author, and fly designer. His writing photographs and flies have been featured at the local, regional, and national level. Bob is also a founding member and executive director for Native Fish Coalition. Look for his books, 50 Places, Fly Fishing the Northeast, 25 Best Towns, Fly Fishing for Trout, 
Square Tail, the definitive guide to brook trout and where to find them. Favorite flies for Maine, 50 essential patterns from local experts. And Fly Fishing Maine, local experts on the state's best waters. Bob, welcome back to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. Thanks for having me, Roger. It's been a while. Yeah, it's been a while, but we've been here before. And I was just thinking about, you know, as I was reading the books, we talked about square tail or brook trout. And a while back, I'm not sure how far back that went, but <laughs> I think it's been a couple of years since you put out that book, huh? Yeah, it's been solid. It's another book in between. Yeah, another book in between. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Good, good. Well, tonight we're going to expand that a bit for Maine. Of course, Maine's known for its great workshop fishing, as well as a lot of other fishing, as we're going to find out tonight. But your most recent book, Fly Fishing Maine, kind of covers the whole state and gives us an insight into the different areas and the different types of fish that are available there and where to fish for them. So let's just start out. When you put this book together, how did you choose what waters, what fisheries to include in the book? Because I know, I mean, you've got a, a lot in the book, but I'm sure not everything could make the book. So how did you decide what went in and what didn't? Well, you know, Maine is a big, diverse fishery. There, in any of these where-to books, uh, there's a certain percentage or certain number of waters that you can't omit that would be glaring omissions. So, you know, you start with the obvious, and you cover them in a way that hopefully is different than what people have seen. Then you need some level of surprises, but as a native fish conservationist, I'm careful. I'm not spot-burning small, delicate waters. I might tell you in a grouping what you would look for, but I'm not going to point to a specific small unregulated stream or pond because that kind of defeats the purpose of what I spend most of my time doing. And so, you know, and, and there's places, there's types of fishing that I might not personally like that much, but again, it, it's necessary. People like it. It's a diverse community. And so, you know, you, that's one of the harder things to do with a where-to book is to figure out what goes in, what doesn't go in, and, you know, you need to cover warm water, salt water, fresh water, lakes and ponds, rivers and streams. You need to mix it up. That's the first thing is you sit down and you create a list and you go over it through your head, you know, a hundred times over until you feel like there's no glaring omissions and there's, you know, some good solid surprises and know, you know, that you're not doing any real harm. The internet right. and books uh, can draw tough attention to uh, these fragile waters. Right, right. Yeah, that's the and starting point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and as we well know, at this point in our lives, we're not getting any more water, but we certainly are getting more people. Uh, yeah. It becomes every day more important to protect what we do have. My yeah. general approach is different than a lot of people. Uh, you're not going to find GPS location. I'm not going to tell you what rock to stand on. I find that kind of boring and unnecessary. I mean, we're anglers. We're all capable of figuring it out. So it's more a big picture where I, I say this is a body of water that's worth going to for one reason or another. And I personally feel that in some cases less is more. If I tell you exactly where to go and that particular spot isn't fishing well or I've missed something, 
that's a disservice. Uh, if I point you in the general direction and say you should go to the Roach River, and by the way, you should go in September, and you do your own exploration, you're likely to stumble into stuff that somebody else didn't, including me. So, right. You know, that's yeah. that's my style. It is certainly a little different. And I'm, I feel that history, lore, science, conservation are critically important and often overlooked parts of a where-to book, especially in a place like Maine. How do you write about Maine without writing about Carrie Stevens and the Grey Ghost and things like that? Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. It's got a lot of history there, doesn't it? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, is there any place east of the Mississippi with, you know, a, a deeper, richer fly fishing history than Maine? You know, you might right. try to make an argument for PA or New York, but I used to say Maine was Montana before Montana was Montana. Places like <laughs> Upper Dam, Kennebago River, they were written about yeah. long before anybody wrote about the Madison and Missouri and Beaverhead and stuff. Right. This was stuff that was, you know, the golden age of outdoor writing. It was you right. know, all my grampy's old magazines had pictures on the cover of gentlemen in wool clothing and dark water and, and uh, canoes. And, yeah. and I'm pretty sure that's not Jackson, Wyoming. And uh, <laughs> No, so, I don't think so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, how did you, considering you know, the all the frontier. different... Yeah. <laughs> Considering all the different types of water that you had to cover, which we're going to talk about here in a minute and break it down, but how did you decide to organize your book? You know, after you made these lists and so forth, you kind of had a unique organization as I look, you know, at the table of contents. So can you kind of explain your your method for organization? You know, I've written enough that I've kind of learned um, how to organize, what to put where. I mean, simple Anybody who's ever written understands the term front matter, and that is the beginning of the book where you talk about things that are leading into what you're really there for. And a book like this, the primary audience, the primary reason people reach for it is where to. They want to know where to go. But there's a whole bunch of good stuff that needs to be there that leads up to building up to why would you go to Maine instead of Pennsylvania or New York, whatever. And that's called front matter, and that's your history, biology, records, you know, some level of tackle. So that goes up front. When it comes to the where-to, we've always been a water-specific genre where most fly fishing writers write about a specific body of water. And that's fine when we're talking about the Rapid River in Maine, the Madison River in Montana, whatever. But that fails to address places where you could go where while none, no water there is worthy of standing on its own, it's a great place to be and great place to fish. So I've always, at least in my recent writing history, what I've done is I group named waters first. Might be alphabetic, might be by state, case like this, simple alphabetic. Then I look at groupings of water, public lands. Public lands offer a lot, especially in Maine. And I could show you a public land that has, you know, nine quality brook trout waters on it, brook trout lakes and ponds. And I might not want to tell you which one I like best, but you could find it if you dug around. You'll find this place. So I'm going to tell you that this is a public land. Could be Baxter State Park, Acadia National Park. 
So that's the second group. And, and I years ago decided that this was something missing from the average fly fishing where to book. And I did it when I wrote my town's book. My town's book was organized by destination town and then all the waters accessible from the town. And then over the years, there were other things that popped up. And these would be types of waters. Beaver ponds are notable in a place like Maine. And yet, would I pick a particular beaver pond and write about it? They don't even have a name. So basically, I tell people, there's these beaver ponds. They're everywhere. Here's the areas to look for. You know, they come and they go. Mother Nature washes them out. They're best, you know, two to three years in. They're worth talking about, and they're worth pursuing. But I can't really point to one. So I cover that. I cover small streams in the same fashion. In a grouping of waters called small streams, I name a handful that are regulated because they typically have better fishing. But again, you know, I actually name and have chapters for a couple of small streams. But then there's this just gigantic resource of unnamed, for the sake of argument, small streams that you could spend weeks and weeks up here. Then there's types of fish, species that, you know, you write about striped bass. Do I write about one particular beach or cove or flat or whatever, or do I just write about striped bass and give you some general ideas where to go? I choose the latter. And uh, Arctic char, it's a bucketless fish. You know, you can get it nowhere else in the contiguous United States. So I have a chapter dedicated to Arctic char. I have a chapter dedicated to sea run brook trout. We have 90% of the sea run brook trout left. I also believe there's some merit in writing about like regulated waters or groupings of protected waters. In Maine, that's our state heritage fish waters or our fly fishing only waters. So it is certainly not your standard organization or even your standard way to go about a where to. But I get a lot of feedback where, you know, anybody can write about the Rapid River, but some of the better feedback I get is, you know, somebody emails me about, reading chapter on Arctic char. And they're like, well, I have no idea. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah. so that's kind of... And then what I also do is I spend a lot of my time in my life in the conservation of wild native fish. So I wouldn't take on a book like this if I couldn't put in a strong conservation message. And, you know, the, the publishing media, they're not clamoring for conservation. So you kind of have to force feed it. And you don't want to jam in in the beginning of the book where someone thumbing through it at a fly show gets turned off right out of the gate and says, this guy's just preaching <laughs> to me and doesn't buy the yeah. book. So I've always said in fairness and as far as effectiveness, you know, I've learned to save that stuff for the end, you know, kind of an expanded epilogue where, you know, you've read everything. You've read your history if you chose to. You skipped over if you don't care. Geography, you know, you've read all your where-tos. If you're still interested and you care, keep reading, and you'll know what these fish are up against and what the threats are and what we're trying to do. And, and if you don't, then fold it up, give it to a friend, and move on. Yeah. That's my formatting, and that seems to work. Now, let me pick a few things off the table of contents, starting with the species that are available. What I know, you know, just because you just mentioned it, brook trout, of course, is – well-known for, uh, Maine's well-known for their brook trout fishery. What's next? What's number two and three on the list well, of you know, most popular Brook trout fish? is, you know, we are 
you know, some people like to say 90%. I think that number is exaggerated. However, you could say 90% of the remaining native, wild native lake and pond brook trout in the United States reside in Maine. 90% of the sea run brook trout are in Maine. 90% of the big river brook trout are in Maine within the United States. So, you know, that is the draw to Maine. And it is why most people who come to Maine to fish come. Number two would be landlocked salmon. I would say fairly say that, you know, their popularity is declining, not growing. And for those who don't know, and it's kind of an interesting factoid, uh, Maine's official state fish is landlocked salmon, not brook trout. And the scientific name, um, Samo Salar Sebago, I mean, they were named after Sebago Lake in Maine. And their native range was very, very small, four lakes and ponds, in, or four lakes in Maine. So they were the number two draw, and they were hugely popular in the heyday, back when, when what we called fly fishing was as much trolling as it was fly casting. You know, the old days of Maine and Adirondack fishing was mostly done in boats, in lakes, and that was a super popular game fish, moved all over. We went from four native populations. We have over 300 now. And mm -hmm. so they were hugely popular. So that's number two, bar none. Smallmouth bass, probably number three. Non-native fish, but, you know, they thrive in certain big, warmer rivers where the brook trout either can't or maybe never did. And um, saltwater, the striper is king. And that is our our big saltwater draw. And it's better fishing for stripers in Maine than a lot of people think. They think New York and Massachusetts, Cape Cod, you know, Montauk, whatever. But we have reputable striper fishing in Maine. There are things that in Maine that haven't done real well. Largemouth have been slow to take off, especially with fly fishermen. We do see the tournaments, but that's mostly spin fishing. Carp fishing hasn't really taken off. Pike is more of an ice pursuit now up in Maine. I don't see a lot of fly fishermen pursuing pike. They do in New Hampshire and Mass, but Mainers haven't really headed there, and folks from out of state don't seem to be coming up here looking for our pike. Muskies, again, they're here, unfortunately in some cases, and but they don't have a huge following. And lake trout are not often pursued by fly fishermen. They're incidental catches most of the time during early spring and fall when they fumble into the shallows. And, and the, you know, the new kid in town, it's Arctic char. Arctic char flew under the radar, formerly you know, known as blueback or sunapee trout, now scientifically grouped under Arctic char, double R. You know, that's become the hot bucket list fish, and it's kind of surprising that we haven't done more to capitalize on that. When you have something that exists nowhere else in the contiguous United States and yet 12 populations of them, you know, I think we're really missing the bus there. You know, they're hard to catch. They're a deep water fish, but they're fascinating. They're beautiful. They're yeah. unique. They're hard fighting. And, you know, what we found is that there is this growing demand from young anglers who, who are looking for that bucket list. They're looking for that rare fish, native fish, and they'll come to Maine. They'll spend three or four days pounding, you know, the char waters to try to catch one. And if they catch one fish, they're leaving, dancing, you know, across the border. They're, they couldn't have had a more successful trip. 
So I keep saying, you know, you got something where the bar's that low. People want one. That's all they want. They want to see one. You know, they want to handle one. They want to take a picture and let it go. So that is a growing market. And I think that that potential, while not limitless, is much more than we have, than that we're getting. Yeah, yeah I would agree. I mean, uh, not fished for char in, in Maine, but I have in Alaska. And gosh, they were just gorgeous fish, just gorgeous fish. Yeah. And I think I was happier catching those than the silver salmon that we were catching up there. But just because, like you say, it's like it's different, right? It's so different than so many of the other species that we fish for. Now, you did not mention, I want to come back to the salmon, but you did not mention rainbows or brown trout. Are they non-existent in Maine or are they just way down the list? They're here. <laughs> you know, they're here. My home water, the Kennebec, it's the fi- one section is the finest wild rainbow fishery in Maine and arguably in New England. Further downstream, closer to my home, at one time, the middle Kennebec uh, from what they call Solon down into Waterville, possibly the premier brown trout you know, stock, but hold over brown trout fishery in the north in New England. And But what's interesting, and I point this out to people all the time, when a Mainer says trout, nothing else, just trout, they mean brook trout. Brook trout, (laughs) okay. That's what they mean. And yet that same angler will say brown trout or rainbow trout, but then they say trout. And people ask me all the time, what, you know, and I say, they mean brook trout. That's how important brook trout are to Mainers. The average Mainer would way rather fish for brook trout than rainbows and browns. Brown trout stocking in Maine and brown trout fishing in Maine has degraded notably in my 20 years up here of living here and, you know, 20 before that of angling up here. And I think it's because the demand just hasn't been there, you know, to the degree that fishing game would like. And people complain that they're too hard to catch or whatever. And and yet we had phenomenal brown trout fishing on the middle Kennebec when I moved up. And, you know, and rainbows are the, you know, they're the the low fish on the totem pole. They We don't have a lot of rainbows in Maine. We've got one section of the Kennebec with a self-sustaining population. We have remnant population on the upper Dead River. We've got some stocked lakes, but, you know, the fly guys aren't spending much time on the lakes. So there's just not a lot of rainbow opportunity up here. But if I had to guess our guys will start leaning toward rainbows as an alternative to browns because they're popular with ice anglers and they're popular with, you know, family fishers and spin fishermen and, yeah, you know, and they do well in stock waters. Right, right. Yeah. Our rainbow trout on the Kennebec, they go back to the old 19, mid-70s vintage Gadabout Gaddis TV show. That's where that show was filmed is on that section of Kennebec, and those rainbows naturalized back in the 70s, and we've never stocked them since, and they get up over 20 inches. I've seen 24-inch rainbows in there. And uh, Yeah, yeah. Well, before we take a break, I just want you to clarify, when you talked about landlocked salmon, you said they were kind of sliding downhill. Is that lack of population, lack of interest? What What's going on there? They're um, uh, more of a lake fish than a river fish. And fly fishing is more of a river-centric sport. Even in Maine, where we still have a huge still water following, 
that's not the up and coming, you know. So young people okay. aren't going to the big lakes. And unlike brook trout, that you can find really good brook trout fishing in very beautiful, small, manageable ponds, the landlocked salmon are in big lakes, and that means troll. And, you know, oh. you just don't see the young people trolling like the, my generation did or whatever. And we've also seen a notable decline in our landlocked salmon populations. Most probably the most significant was the Chesuncook system north of Moosehead was phenomenal 20 years ago. And, and it's crashed notably, in my opinion. Moosehead Lake, you know, that salmon population is, you know, not what it once was. And, you know, we're talking about a non-native fish that is feeding predominantly on a non-native minnow, smelts. And typically, where we have salmon, we have lake trout. We probably have some brook trout, in some cases a lot of brook trout. And we're seeing more and more smallmouth bass show up in these big lakes. West Grand Lake, Moosehead, you know, Sebago, all the fabled landlocked waters are now smallmouth waters. And you get to that point where the aquarium is too full, too many mouths to feed, mm. and salmon seem to suffer more than others. And they get racy. You know, the thing with trolling in general is... You know, those folks are looking for really big fish. They're not going to power up those big boats and go out there for a 16-inch landlocked salmon. And mm, so yeah. that's – and, of course, yeah, we didn't talk about yeah. Atlantic salmon at all. Yeah. Right, which you Atlantic also have. Salmon, yeah. yeah. We have Atlantic salmon. They're shut down of fishing due to ESA listing, and they're in dire straits, and they're maintained almost solely through federal and and volunteer stocking these days, and the hope is that we can sometime, you know, someday get them back. But they were a huge part of Maine's angling history. Bang downtown Bangor, you know, the first salmon caught in the Penobscot every year went to the President of the United States for about 100 years or something. And, uh, wow. you know, so that, so that now was is a that, huge uh, so Is that shut down just in Maine, or is it also in, like, Massachusetts and down the coast? They are uh, done. Uh, they are for, yeah, for all intents and purposes, salmon are extinct in Massachusetts, Connecticut, Vermont, New Hampshire. Wow. All of the federal federal stocking programs on outside of Maine have been suspended, so they're no longer being actively stocked. Wild, you know, returns are in the tens, if at all. Mm. They're, you know, the feds are concentrating all their money right now on the Penobscot and the tribes are getting involved. Um, we also have the fabled Down East Salmon Rivers of, you know, Denny's River fame and Machias and all that. And, you know, that was a huge part of Maine's historic angling. You know, it was poor man's Atlantic salmon. You know, Boston guy could drive to Bangor, Maine, or take a train and fish Atlantic salmon. And that river was strung out with these salmon clubs. One of them, I uh, forget whether it's VZ or Penobscot Salmon, they purported to be the oldest fishing club in America, a continuously operating fishing club. But they are standalone buildings on the banks of the Penobscot at some of the bigger holes. Hmm. Now, and what about up to Canada? Do they have restrictions you know, Canada is still open. No, they're open, but they're they seeing some issues. Okay. The Mir yeah, Mermachie is... Um, is suffering two things, um, uh, yeah. non-native smallmouth okay. introduction 
They're seeing an increase in striped bass, which are native, but their numbers are going up, most likely due to changes in the Gulf Stream or something that's pushing right. them further north. But all is not well for Atlantic salmon right. anywhere. And, yeah. you know, the further you go north, and probably better shape they're in, but they're in big right. trouble in the United States. Okay. All right, well, we'll take a quick break here, and uh, we'll be right back talk more about fly fishing in Maine. So... Hang tight. We'll be right back. Musky Town is so much more than a musky fly shop. Whether you're a musky fly fishing guide, an experienced musky hunter, or just getting into predators on the fly, wherever life's adventures take you, Musky Town's proven lineup helps you be more successful on the water. They have rods, reels, lines, and flies for musky, pike, and bass. Most of their flies are tied in-house, and they fish them at every possible opportunity so they know what works, why it works, and exactly what you need to put big fish in the net. Sit back, relax, enjoy legendary fly shop service, and please let them know if there's ever anything that they can do to help you. Next time you think of Muskie, go to Muskie Town. That's muskytown.com. You can call them at 763-312-6012. Again, that's muskytown.com, 763-312-6012. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Bob Mallard about fly fishing in Maine. So if you'd like to ask Bob a question, go to our homepage, fill out that form, send it in, and we'll try to get an answer tonight. So, Bob, I always ask my guests what's going on in your fly fishing world now, and before the show we were talking about all your emails coming in. (laughs) So uh, I take it that you're very busy with the coalition. Is that right? Yeah, you know, it... um I semi-retired. I closed my fly shop after 15 years. I um, was a software guy prior to that. And you know, so I kind of thought I was winding it down and do more writing and a little bit of guiding. And we started this Native Fish Coalition. It was originally called Native Fish Coalition of Maine. Our intent was to fill a void left by Sportsman's Alliance of Maine that kind of walked off the field in regard to the preservation of our wild native brook trout, salmon, blueback, whatever. And so for some totally unexpected reason, what we knew wouldn't be easy because it's a major shift in thinking within, you know, the angling community, especially the trout community. Um, But we knew it would be better received in Maine than elsewhere because we still have these fish. It's easier to get people motivated to save what they still have versus restore what they've lost. And so we knew we could do what we needed to do in Maine. We knew there was good reason. We knew we'd have varying levels of support. But all of a sudden, without any solicitation, we found there was a demand for some rethinking of our trout conservation and fish conservation outside of Maine and driven in very much by younger people. And uh, so long story short, you know, this Maine thing is now 14 chapters strung from Maine to Alabama, including non-trout states. And we're about to launch the 15th. We got two or three in the wings. And so this little hobby has become a full-time job at a time when I really wasn't looking for a full-time job. And, uh, <laughs> but, you know, I, I stuck my head out there, and at this point, it's important enough to me that I'm going to ride it out. 
I'm going to run, take this as far as it'll go, and hopefully be able to hand it off to someone younger and willing to keep it alive. And what we have found is is there's been you know some pretty good media acceptance and support, um, some resistance, of course, but you know the young people, uh, they're they're different. They're different in a lot of ways. These young kids, uh, they don't want to follow a stocking truck around. They don't want to be standing in the same stretch of river with 47 other guys. And uh, so, you know, they've taken up fiberglass again, you know, and, quote, blue lines. And they're, you know, Tenkara, and they're disappearing into the backcountry, and they're chasing exotic <laughs> and rare species. And so it's it's really interesting that here we spent – I'm 64 years old, so we spent – you know, most of my life trying and failing to attract young people into the sport and uh, into the advocacy. And quite by accident, we just stumble into this thing. And, and what we've learned is, you know, they're not buying what we've been selling. Um, and they want something totally different. So, you know, we've got folks that are focused solely on rare stream resident bass. Uh, we've got, you know, our trout folks, mostly brook trout, of course, because that's the east. And, and we've even got, you know, a chapter in Ohio whose primary focus is non-native, um, oh, sorry, non-game native fish darters and things like that. And so what that's doing is for most of my life, quote, fish conservation has been trout-centric. And it's been wild-centric, not native-centric. And you could argue that there is no conservation in the preservation of, you know, naturalized non-natives. You know, they don't belong there. They're harmful. And whether we like to fish for them or not is irrelevant. You know, from a conservation standpoint, they're, they're not a good thing. And, you know, while you can't reclaim and undo most of what we've already done, we could at least stop the bleeding. And that's where the focus is. Let's slow down. Let's not put the stocking trucks everywhere. If we don't want bass folks putting bass in trout water, then we should stop putting trout mm -hmm. in bass water. So this mm -hmm. is a paradigm shift, something I didn't personally think I would live long enough to see. And uh, wow. so here we are with this uh, thing, and, you know, there's as much resistance as there is support. You know, I don't know. Well, there was a podcast that just was the best thing that ever happened to us was a podcast has the native fish movement gone too far and i was shocked at how many people came to our side and said of course it hasn't gone too far you know how, how could you say that you know we haven't gone far yeah. enough and, yeah uh, yeah and so that's yeah i mean it's become kind of a all-encompassing thing for me i can't keep up with it and you know we're we've got money we've got support we've got membership and you know, and our primary focus right now is branding, you know, just explaining what this means, what it is, why is it important, you know, what can we do and, and can't do, and where should we go and where shouldn't we go. So does And I guide a little have, bit. Have, I guide and oh, go ahead. Yeah. I was going to ask you, does the coalition have a website where people can learn more about what you're doing? Yes, nativefishcoalition.org. And uh, we've got a really robust website. We, of course, we use a little bit of Instagram and some Facebook, and it can all be found from the website. But the website, you know, has a ton of information. It has our okay. FAQ explaining what we do, what we don't do, and and um, 
it's um, yeah, it's quite interesting. I, I would have said good. I wouldn't have expected it in a million years. Yeah. Well, the universe has picked you. <laughs> I don't I believe guess, this. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 <laughs> okay, let's dive back into Maine fly fishing. And um, can you kind of describe the different water rights that are in Maine? I know you've got public, you've got private, but you also have tribal lands. What does the fly fisher face up there as far as getting access because of the, the water rights situation? I think the most important thing for folks to know about Maine is, you know, I'm going to guess two-thirds of the state is off the grid. It's undeveloped. These are what they call the um, unincorporated townships. It's dirt roads. There's no lights. There's no signs. There's spotty cell coverage. There's no permanent dwellings. You know, you could be seven, eight, maybe 10 miles off the pavement fishing, and that pavement that's within seven, eight miles might be 10, 15 miles from the nearest dwelling. So it's a big, wide-open state. It's, it's the last frontier in the Northeast. And and unlike most states where the undeveloped land is limited to, you know, state and federal owned, a lot of it's private, it's working forest, it's timberland. You know, that's the starting thing I tell people is uh, don't bring your sedan up to Maine and expect to, you know, drive into even some of our public lands are miles in um, Dabuli public land. I think it's 28 miles off the pavement on logging roads with full log trucks chugging down the road, kicking dust and mud and blowing up bridges. So it's a, it is a different world. And so that's part of it. Our legal access rights to access lakes and ponds is much better than our legal right to access rivers and streams. We fall under the old colonial Great Ponds Acts, which you know originated in Massachusetts, and Maine was actually part of Massachusetts at one point. So we have a lot of their old laws. So you know our laws basically say that the public has guaranteed access or um, egress and access, whatever I say, for the purpose of fish and fowl to any great pond. A great pond is defined as anything 30 acres or bigger, natural waters and manipulated waters, you know, uh, things that have dams, I think it's 40 acres or bigger. So, you know, while you can't just go trouncing down my driveway, you know, if you, you can go overland or ply or whatever to get in, but it has to be on what they call unimproved land and that, you know, could be a foot trail or whatever. So that's one, that's how we access most of the working forest. The working forests are, some of it's open, ungated, and no pay. Some of it is behind gate systems where they collect a fee that helps maintain the roads. And, and they have a mix of formal and informal campsites. When these are formal, they're typically, they're not, some are reservable, most of them aren't. They just have a fire pit. It may be a old picnic table. The uh, Our lakes and rivers and streams, you know, we have the standard navigable stuff, but that doesn't mean you can just cross my land to get to it. You just got to get on at a bridge, and you can paddle through, and definition of navigable has something to do with the ability to float, you know, a pulp log, which is, I don't know, four feet long, eight inches across or something. And it's not challenged often. We don't have uh, the landowner wars that you see out in Montana and stuff over access 
or Colorado, we will. There will come a time when, you know, when these working forests revert to private land, in which some of it is now, you know, it's a different game. They stop popping up gates. Yeah. But Baxter is huge. Baxter State Park, it's the crown jewel of Maine public lands, Mount Katahdin, and, and it's um, gated and fee access and pretty strict, stricter than you'd expect, stricter than I would even say parts of, you know, national forest system, national park system, rather. We have a sliver of the White Mountain National Forest. We have Acadia National Park, and we have the new Katahdin Woods and Water National Monument, which is a huge slice of land east of Baxter. So we have access one way or another to more fishing than any state in the east, and because mm, of the nice. lack of developed private land. Some you got to pay, some you don't. Tribal land, it's usually open to traditional access, and, you know, they gate, but they don't gate any more or any less than anybody else. People, and in the case of gates, you know, you basically, they're not telling you you can't be in there, they're just telling you you can't drive in. And, you know, people mountain bike around, walk in. When I do the bulk of my pond fishing, you know, an hour and a half, two hours north of my home, and I'm probably seven, eight miles off the pavement, and this pavement is, if I cross that one two-lane road, I could go another 30 miles, 20 miles before I hit another one. And I'm in working forest and a little bit on a small piece of landlocked state property, and I'm camping in informal sites in the backcountry, and cell coverage is, I go to what we call the phone booth. It's a high spot on a road where we uh, marked, a, marked a tree with a double uh, orange tape because, you know, I drove up and down the roads until I could actually pick up a signal, you know, good enough to get a call, and I marked it, GPSed it, so all my friends know where it is, and if you've got a yeah. email, you can go sit on the top of the hill for a half hour. But, yeah, until they uh, – I live in a high mountain valley, and um, there wasn't a cell tower at the end of the valley for years and years and years. And so it's kind of like you, you know, you'd be driving down the highway and there's these, you know, pullouts on the side of the road and then you see people on their cell phones, right? Because <laughs> that's yeah, the standing, one spot yeah. that you could get. A, yeah. yeah. Is, uh, I mean, you'll see them like, standing on the running boards on their car, their truck, just, you know, just to get a little higher. Or something. <laughs> yeah. In fact, the place I use, I actually, and it is in the middle of, no, it's in the big middle of, a, it's on a hill in the middle of a clear cut. And I have to pass it, turn my truck around, and face it back toward the mountain that's got the cell site on it to get a signal. <laughs> and if it's cloudy, I don't get a signal. And if the clouds are hanging on the mountains, I get nothing. And, uh, and that, you know, that's I had funny. no signal up there for years. So this is a relatively yeah. new thing. But I would say half the road that I'm driving to get there, I don't have any signal. I just happen to be able to find one in the backwoods. And, well, uh, that's you know, a these good roads, thing to keep in Keep in mind as people come up there to, you know, that are used to always having cell service, so be prepared, right? Yeah. Yeah, and it's a buggy place. You know, I always joke around that out west, I don't know, where are you? Are you? I'm in Colorado. 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 So, uh, yeah. yeah. So I've, you know, I did a couple of whirlwind 30-day Colorado trips. Mm-hmm. I've gone out Montana, Idaho, Wyoming a lot in my younger days, and I used to go into the fly shops, and they'd have a little grease board, and it would say, you know, beware of biting bugs on the meadow. 
and I'd go out onto this, whether it was Spinney in Colorado or Dreamstream or wherever, and and I would be looking at my hands at these what I considered paltry insects. <laughs> Flip them on off, going, wow, these guys are sissies. If they think yeah. these are bad, they need to come to Maine. And uh, we have the Labrador, Alaska insects, biting insects. They just swarm you. Black flies, noceums, mosquitoes, we got them all. Deer flies, you know, moose flies, flies I've never heard of. So it's rugged, it's moist as heck, it's wet up there, it's just water everywhere you look, just ponds and streams and flowages and beaver ponds. And, and you know, we used to joke that you couldn't burn the main woods with a blowtorch. And uh, <laughs> biggest well, fire I've seen in my life, oh, biggest fire I've seen in my life in Maine, forest fire, 14 acres. Oh. That's nothing. That doesn't even get a phone call in Colorado. That's, that's yeah, that's a backyard pit fire here in Colorado. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's somebody burning the lawn. You know, and, that, yeah, the slash, wet, burning your slash. Yeah. yeah, yeah. There was uh, Phil McCartney asked. He's from Kentucky. Asked. He says, "When is the black fly population likely to drive me from Maine waters?" So, when is that key black fly season? And is that uh, you know it's. The best fishing overlaps the black flies, so that's a fact of life. And they, you know, we are seeing some climate shift up here, for sure. Call it what you want, blame who you want, it's happening. We are seeing earlier spring, later falls. So it used to be that we'd say sometime, you know, right after a memorial, we'd get two weeks of just brutal flies. Now these black flies are a little bit earlier. So the good news is they kind of start tapering off mid to late June. The bad news is the mosquitoes are right behind them. And then you kind of <laughs> lose the black flies completely, and it's just mosquitoes. And then as you edge your way in the summer, the no join the mosquitoes, and they might be the worst of all. And Oh, boy. But if... It's hard, you know, I've lived in it my whole life, and so I'm just kind of used to it. I've been to Labrador, I understand what bad bugs are, and and there are times when, you know, I'm shaking my head going, man, there got to be something better to do than this. And But it's hard to prepare somebody for how bad it can actually be. It's a matter of your constitution. What can you handle? And when we're out doing dishes in the backcountry camping, you know, we're in bug nets. And we all wear um, sun gloves more for bugs than sun. Cigars, if I'm sitting in a canoe in Maine on a fishing for bird trout on a pond, I got a cigar going more often than not because nothing keeps the bugs down like a little cloud of smoke. But all I can say yeah. is people tell me they're really, really bad. And... Yeah. My, okay. Probably my okay. best, funniest story is I was hiking up a trail on the Roach River toward Moosehead, which I write about. I see a gentleman, middle-aged or older gentleman, coming toward me, dragging his fly line. He was walking head down at a really rapid pace, and all I could see is his fly line trailing behind him coming out of the reel. It had come out of the guides of the fly rod. and. I looked at him like, wow, he's having a rough day, and I said something. Hey, how are you doing? And he looks up at me and swears and utters about insects. 
and I noticed he had like blood on his forehead and stuff, and he just passed me in a wave and barely spoke. And as he was going, there was 20, maybe 30 feet of fly line dragging in the mud behind him. He got out of there that quick. So that's an extreme, but that's a man who probably never saw me back again <laughs> and didn't deal with it well. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's tell me about uh, some of the. Um, well, let me read this one question from Cindy because she's says she's new to the area and relatively new to fly fishing. So I always like to help those people out. She's asking, is there any good, reasonable creek, stream, or river fishing around Portland slash Scarborough? New to the area, relatively new to fly fishing. Also, any good fly fishing groups, shops, et cetera, in that area? The um you know, L.L. Bean is one of the more helpful. The giant L.L. Bean store in Freeport, Maine, it's very helpful. They've got great staff, huge supply. Um, we don't have the small shop infrastructure that a lot of states have. In fact, we've lost a ton of shops in Maine. There is a shop downtown Portland. I think it's called the Tackle Shop. We have these state heritage fish waters. They are legally designated wild native brook trout ponds. There are two in York County, which is uh, kind of greater Portland. If she emails me, I'll give her the names of them. It's bobmallard58 at gmail.com, mallard like a duck. But I could give her the names and rough, you know, where they are. There's some wild brook trout in coastal streams down there. Now, they're not named, or they have names, but they're not known. But we are seeing more and more sea-run brook trout populations rebound. There was a time when most of the coastal streams were stocked with brown trout. A lot of that, we went from 44 active brown trout stocking programs to four, a lot of which were concessions made in regard to the Atlantic salmon ESA. And what's interesting is pretty much every one that we stopped stocking with browns has reverted to a wild sea-run brook trout population. And there is Freeport, Portland. And so so there's the two small, beautiful little uh, state heritage fish ponds. Um, And there's uh, one's called Kennebunk Plains. The other one I think is called Cold Water, Cold Brook Stream Pond or something, or Cold Stream Pond. And then there's uh, the Casco Bay area has some of the best striper fishing in the state. I would say the best striper fishing. So from the mouth of the Kennebec down into Portland is the finest striper fishing we have. And, you know, there's extensive flats. There's beaches you can fish off of. Um, you know, I can recommend a guide if she emails me. And But, you know, it's um, more fishing in greater Portland than you think. I mean, I told somebody a couple of years ago that I could put them on wild native brook trout just in your county, and he couldn't believe it. He hiked into the pond. I told him. He said the place was loaded with them. It's cool. there. Cool. Well, it's not the hot, okay. not the hotbed, but it's there. Yep. Yeah. So, what um, when we're talking about rivers and streams, what are the would you say the top three fisheries? And let's talk brook trout because that's your fish up there. So, yeah. what would be the top three places you'd want to head, and why? Describe them. Most people would say the Rapid River is the 
premier brook trout fishery in America, stream, river, brook trout fishery in America. Access is tough. It's gated. It's a pretty good hike in. You, there are, there's one sporting camp up on the beginning of it, the Middle Dam, Lakewood it's called. You can stay there, and that gives you easy access. People bike in, hike in. Some guides have keys to get you in. And, but the Rapid River is historic. It has brook trout over 20 inches in it. It's a phenomenal fishery. And uh, Is that a big river? It, is uh, that a... You know, I'd call it a medium-sized river. It's certainly not my river. My river is a big river. But, you know, I think high flows in the rapid are in that 600 range, 600 CFS. My river runs 2,500 CFS in low water. And so it's a it's a small river, a medium-sized river. There are places I can cross back and forth. And, and okay. in some places it actually seems quite small, like big stream size. So that's number one. McGalloway would be number two, and they're both Rangeley area. And um, McGalloway is a you know somewhat of a tailwater. It's not what you'd say in Colorado is a tailwater. It's still that tannic brown water, but it comes from a dam and it's colder year round. And and access is actually easier. There's a parking lot, couple of you know one parking lot at a power station. You can just park walk down. There's a couple of places you can pull over along the road that are now public land with trails in. Fabled water, the Kennebago River in, in Rangeley, but it's more seasonal. It's more spring and fall. The Roach River is a seasonal brook trout fishery, tributary to Moosehead Lake up by Greenville. Those are now, when you, probably For those the, of us that don't know the state, when these areas you've just talked about, are we talking about western Maine? Central, northern. So, yeah, Rangeley is historic. That is most of what you read about Maine and the golden era was Rangeley-based. That's uh, Upper Dam, which was at one point the most famous fishery in America, and Rapid River and Kennebago River and Kennebago Lake. Kennebago Lake's the largest fly fishing only water east of the Mississippi. So that's Rangeley in what they call the Western Mountains. Mm-hmm. Moosehead region, that's Greenville, and that's kind of center state. And and it also had a real historic tourism economy and still does. And Moosehead is our largest lake, and I think it's the largest wholly in New England. And it's by far the largest wild native brook trout lake left in New England. All the others have lost their brook trout to either salmon or or whatever, and it's got three very popular tributaries, the Moose River, the Roach River, and the East Outlet. So based out of Greenville, at the right time of year, um, you can find some pretty solid brook trout fishing. Fall is probably best. Spring waters are a little more unpredictable, can be high. Fall is very popular up there. Rangeley is very popular in the spring and fall, but it has a more reliable, the rivers are smaller, the water system smaller, watershed. I live on the Kennebec River, which is kind of south-central Maine. It's kind of weird. What they call central Maine is like two-thirds of the way down the state, but everything else above it's undeveloped. And if you're looking for the real backcountry, easy-to-execute Maine experience, it's a sporting camp. We still have you know, somewhere around 50 operational sporting camps, backcountry camps that fly people in and out, 
and have cabins and full meal plans. My favorite is Libby Camps out of um, the Allagash region. Pierce Pond camps over here um, closer to me. Those are a wonderful set of camps. And Pierce Pond's kind of an interesting, it's halfway between me and, and Rangeley. And the camps are Cobbs, C-O-B-B-S, Pierce Pond camps. And that's it closer to the masses than the Allagash stuff. But, you know, when in doubt, if you're not somebody who has the vehicle or the equipment or really or the knowledge or just dive into the backcountry, you can drive or whatever, fly to Bangor, Maine. You can get a float plane out of Bangor and, you know, within an hour or less, you're landing in front of a lodge up in the Allagash as deep into the backcountry as you can get in New England with right. all kinds right. of wonderful fish around you. Yeah. Let me take a quick break here, Bob, and when I come back, I'd like you to talk about a little bit about the, the state heritage fish waters and the fly fishing only waters. So gear up for that, and we'll be right back. Okay? All right. Fly Fishers International needs your support. Its conservation projects at both the national and club level are addressing critical issues of importance to fly fishers. FFI efforts include being a strong advocate for removing dams on the Snake River, preserving water quality through their science on the fly program, and taking action to conserve the declining populations of Atlantic striped bass. FFI serves as a strong advocate for fly fishing in all waters for all fish to preserve and promote the arts of fly casting and fly tying and to help ensure future generations can continue to enjoy these one-of-a-kind experiences. These efforts won't nearly be as effective without your help. If you're not already a member, we invite you to join Fly Fishers International as they work to cultivate conservation, education, community within the sport of fly fishing. Join Fly Fishers International today and help support their fine work. For more information, go to their website at flyfishersinternational.org. That's flyfishersinternational.org. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We're talking with Bob Mallard about fly fishing in Maine. If you'd like to ask Bob a question? Fill out that form on our homepage, and we'll try to get to it before the end of the show. Uh, we did get one question, in, and since you were just talking about Western Maine here, Bob, Leonard, and he's in New Hampshire, he says, when's a good time to start fishing Western Maine near the New Hampshire border? I'll go over as early as mid-April if the roads are open. As I said, that area seems to start quicker than my area and way quicker than northern. I mean, where I fish... I don't see ice off the ponds till mid-May, and roads aren't passable till, you know, likewise, early May, mid-May. But I can find fishable water in Rangeley typically by the 15th of April. It might be further downriver at times because the fish are very migratory. But you'll see by, you know, opening day, April 1st, you'll see people already pounding into the waters up in Rangeley, which is right on the border. and. And on his side of the border, the Dead Diamond River is, um, you know, outside of Maine. It's the finest wild brook trout, you know, fishery outside of Maine. If, Great. It, uh, if it was in Maine, it'd be one of our top five. It's a very solid fishery. It's actually part of the same watershed that the Megalloway, the Rapid, the Dead Diamond, they're all part of the same watershed, Kennebago, all those fabled rivers, yeah. Okay, Gary uh, Kaufman in North Carolina wanted want you to talk a little bit about the 
tackle differences or preferences for fishing main lakes versus streams. What weight rods and, you know, how do you gear up up there? Well, you know, my standing joke is I get asked to do tackle sidebar every once in a while, you know, perfect ideal tackle for brook trout. And I tongue-in-cheek, my answer is two to six-weight rod, six foot <laughs> to ten foot. So the short answer is that no species lives in more variable conditions or grows to more variable adult sizes than brook trout in Maine. And mm. in North Carolina, I've fished down there enough. You know, the brook trout up there, maybe 8 inches, 10 inches would be a, a big fish. And, and it's mostly small stream. They're gone from most of the bigger rivers. They're down in their lakes and ponds. So when you have high-gradient freestone streams with brook trout and you have Moosehead Lake, you know, you're getting these small freestones in high-elevation main Baxter and stuff. You know, they're under snow seven months a year, and so the growth rates are really slow. An adult two-, three-year-old brook trout could be five inches long. Conversely, they're pulling 24-inch five-year-old fish out of Moosehead Lake and everything in between. I fish some small ponds that are 30 acres, and I'm getting 16-inch brook trout out of them. You know, I've got some ponds I fish that are maybe 15, 20 acres that I, you know, I get fish up to 14 inches on dry flies. Kennebago, the Rapid, uh, Megalloway, I mean, brook trout 16 to you know, 18 are not at all uncommon, and 20 are catchable at any point in time. So you just got, it's all about what do you want to do. If you're a small stream person, a 7-foot 3-weight glass rod, that's what I like as a general, and when I really get fine-tuning, I go lighter and shorter. On the big rivers, it's a trout rod. It's what you'd use for brown trout or rainbow. It's a 9-foot five-weight rod that allows you to dry fly nymph, small streamers, whatever. And if you get into wet lining ponds, it's a six-weight with a full sinking line, which is an art form. You know, most fly fishermen don't know how to fish sinking lines on ponds because they don't get that opportunity. But if you can spend time on main ponds, you better know how to wet line because if the fish aren't up, you're not going to bring them up. So you got to go down to them. That's the easy part, you know, seven-foot three-weight for the small streams, get yourself a nine-foot five-weight for the rivers and ponds, and bring along a six-weight if you plan on spending a lot of time on ponds. Okay, okay. Tell us about the state heritage fish waters. What are they? Where are they? How are they designated? The state heritage fish was law. It's interesting. Sportsman's Alliance of Maine, with help from a group, Dean Angling Society, uh, to you, was involved to some degree as well. And after years of uh, working with the Department of Fisheries to try to get them to stop stocking never-stocked waters and to prohibit the use of live fish's bait on these waters and not getting it accomplished, Sportsman's Alliance of Maine, which is certainly not a radical conservation group, it's a hook and bullet group, they took it to the legislature under a, a recently deceased gentleman named George Smith, their executive director, who my book is, is actually dedicated to. His group, which I was part of, went to the legislature and we pled our case, pleaded our case and said, based on their own data, we had close to 500 remaining never stocked brook trout lakes and ponds in the state. Now we're down a, you know, 276, 10 years later. You know, where are we going to be in 10 years? And 
we built a strong case. They had policies in place that said in the face of a declining fishery, we do the following, you know, tackle restrictions, length bag, seasonal closures, on and on. And yet the facts didn't back that. I took the last 30 waters that went from never stocked to stocked, and every one of them went from general law regulation to stock with no interim attempt to mitigate the problem without backing up the truck. So for the first time in the history of Maine, the legislature passed unanimously a bill, a law that prohibited the department from stocking any non and never stocked water and, and prohibiting the use of live fish as bait. That morphed into a second bill initiated by the legislature itself, which was to protect waters that hadn't been stocked in 25 years or more, same protections. And what was interesting there is during the hearings, people kept throwing out legislators, so, you know, Pond A is going to be protected under this? And I'd say, nope, it's been stocked once. You know, Pond B, nope, it's been stocked once. You know, like when? 75 years ago, 50 years ago. So they said, all right, we think this should go further, which is very rare in a sportsman-centric legislative committee that they'd be pushing for more regulation where the trend is more opportunity. So they said we'd like to expand this to cover other waters, and the battle then was come up with a line in the sand that said, you know, um, how many years after the last stocking, and the department fought for 25 years, which was biologically unsound. I mean, brook trout don't live for five years, so it was just another way to weaken the bill. So long story short, we got 25 years and doubled the number of waters. So we're somewhere around 575 legally designated waters that they cannot stock without legislative approval and that they were not, they had to remove live fish's bait as an option on more than half of them that were still open to it. So it's the broadest, uh, most broadest applied fish protection rule that I'm aware of, and it's one of the few that is law, not rule, and or policy. So the list is available online. And my group, NFC, we took on a project to sign these bonds, uh, to tell people you're on one and, you know, behave and uh, help protect. And the project, huge success. It was the, the most successful volunteer effort I've ever seen. We've, been, we've managed to post 340 waters, of which most are off, you know, the grid, trails into them, you know, some are GPS, they know because there's no trail left. So we've been able to post 440 signs on 340 waters using volunteers at no cost to the department or no cost to anglers. And it proved to us yeah. how, and yeah, yeah, it proved to us. And this, what's interesting about this, this is led by Native Fish Coalition. Native Fish Coalition is not a fly fishing club. It's a conservation group. We're all fishermen, not, not all. But most, and uh, most of us are fly fishermen, but not all of us. we got ice fishermen, we got spin fishermen, bait fishermen, non-fishermen. And what's interesting is that the support we got for posting these signs, it didn't come from where you'd think. It didn't necessarily come from the, quote, traditional fly fishing community. It came from the average Mainer, rural Mainer who fishes these ponds, who cares about these ponds, and um, doesn't want them to go away. And, you know, we've got 
pictures of people snowmobiling in with their children, hanging signs in the winter because it's easier to get in there over the snow than the trails. We got pictures of, of husbands and wives and kids and everything else trudging through the tundra to bang up signs on these ponds. Wow. It's a real pride of place thing. And, and that's why brook trout conservation is easier in Maine than anywhere else. You start talking about brook trout, Pennsylvania, all the brown trout fans wake up, rear up, and push back. Mm-hmm. And, and it happens mm-hmm. all down the East Coast, which is we've lost so many, so much brook trout across the East that blowback from the angling community, when you start talking about trying to regain some of it, they're spooked because they're thinking, like, what if this doesn't work? You know, right now, at least they got, you know, rainbows and browns. You know, these guys screw it up and we'll have nothing. And, you know, that's the biggest challenge when you get in a Connecticut, Rhode Island, Massachusetts, and, you know, even the southern Appalachians and North Carolina and Tennessee. You know, there's been a lot of damage done. And most of the yeah. intact systems are above a waterfall. And, of course, Colorado, but, how many cutthroat populations do you really know out there? Right, yeah. right. Yeah, I mean, we just had a did a show on Yellowstone, and they're having some trouble just even figuring out what is a cutthroat because of interbreeding, you know, and stuff like that. Uh, yeah, some yeah. Hybridization there, so. is a real yeah, threat. Yeah. Yep. yeah. So, yeah. so, so you know, it's a, the her- it's a great program, the, yeah. The Heritage Program is basically to bring the waters back to their native state, so to speak? In other words, not in No, they're already there. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's to not bring them back. It's to prevent them from getting in trouble. So, getting, so they're okay Everybody they are, talks. Yeah. They are, and they yeah. wouldn't be on the list if they were either heavily compromised or stocked or had been stocked in 25 years. They wouldn't even be on the list. Okay. So okay. I tell people, if you really want to find what is rare anywhere else other than Maine, wild native, you know, unstocked brook trout ponds. They don't have any development, nothing. These are hiking informal trail and a place to slide a float tube or something. The state heritage fishwaters are a great place to start because there's no sifting through rule books trying to, you know, figure out what's what. So I tell people there's a couple ways to do it. One is if you go onto NFC's website, you can volunteer, you can adopt a pond that needs signs, and we'll provide the signs, the hardware, maps, whatever you need. And you go in, you hang the sign, and you fish. And so it's, it's you're having some fun, you're doing some good, and you're being basically led to the kind of water you want to see. The other thing is if you go on the, my book has a link to the list, and uh, the list is actually in statute because it's one of the parts of the law. The first part is inclusion criteria. The second part is prohibitive acts. The third is the actual list. And so you can get that list. You can then cross-reference that list based on, you know, kind of where you want to be, Western Mountains, Moosehead, Allagash, whatever. And and then you can cross-reference to the rule book and look for the more heavily regulated. Let's be honest. If it Short of being really difficult access, nothing improves fishing like tackle restrictions and uh, length and bag concessions. Um, general law waters in Maine, five fish on a heritage water would be worms, five fish, six inches. 
that is more than most waters can take. They're not going to go away, but they're not going to fish well. You know, find your heritage water that has a fly fishing only restriction, that has a slot limit. Some of our best are these um, 6 to 12 inches, no fish over. 18-inch minimums, catch and release. You know, that's where I tell people to go. You just narrow mm-hmm. your heritage yeah. list down and, and go from there. And, so and what's the, really uh, good right now. Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I was, oh, I was just going to say it. it you're on. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I think we got a slight delay here. Uh, I was going to ask you what makes those fly fishing only waters fly fishing only waters. How are those designated? 50 years ago. Uh, we were smarter 50 years ago than we are today. What Back in the day when this was big business, um, sporting camps were putting a lot of mainers to work, guiding, cooking, you know, on and on. They had a lot of influence in the legislature, and they were smart enough to know that no small wild native brook trout pond can stand up to the angling pressure exploitation that comes along with bait fishing and and liberal regulations. And so they were a powerful lobby, and almost all of the fly fishing only waters, and there's like 200 of them, that's just lakes and ponds, those regs have been in place over 50 years. Unfortunately, our current administration, they're rolling back. They're backsliding because they've convinced themselves that the biggest threat to these this fish are, you know, a lack of angler participation or something. So it's more, they're worried more about licenses than fish. And I think they're dead wrong about the licenses. I do not believe that people are here to exploit. And unfortunately, some are, and if you let them, they will. But in general, somebody was really smart in Maine at one point, and, um, you know, they put in protective laws. Um, Brook trout are a sucker for a worm. You know, good luck. It's, It's like the old trailhead and parking lot thing you know everybody likes to blame our problems on habitat and i say well can you explain to me why all the bad habitat is close to parking lots close to boat launches you know close to bridges (laughs) and uh you know it's it's interesting because i think we're way smarter than people want to admit we are or even that fishing game wants to admit we are i mean we know the impact we have on fisheries maine has a great saying up here you know, you ask a Mainer in the backcountry, you know, if such and such pond is worth fishing, and they know it's not, they say, no, don't bother. It's fished out. That's what they say. And I have to remind people that, yeah, I have to remind people at hearings that, by the way, you know, I'm sure your daddy, your grandpa, your uncles, your brothers, they all use this saying. We all say, if the fishing's terrible, because it's fished out. But, of course, then we'll say that we have no impact on the resource. And I go, so where did this fished out thing come from? You know, we all know, but we just don't want to admit it. And because uh, it would require concessions that many sportsmen just don't want to make today. And, uh, yeah, yeah. You know, but it, yeah. Uh, well, uh, we wouldn't have stocking. Out. Yeah. Yeah. We wouldn't have stocking if we didn't exploit. <laughs> yeah. Know, like, right. That's exactly. why we got stocking. Yeah. Well, in the U.S., we're used to this put and take business and that's what a lot of people expect especially people just starting the fish and you know aren't you know haven't been around it for a while really you know don't know about those things i mean you take a a young family and they go up to the reservoir for the weekend camping and they throw some line in they haven't been fishing they don't know about all this stuff 
They're not educated on that. And, and that's so. fine. You know, yeah. if we want to provide that service in a man-made reservoir, any fish conservationist worth their hat doesn't care about a man-made reservoir because it's an artificial habitat to begin with. The last place you're going to see NFC calling for concessions is a man-made reservoir or a tailwater. What is there? Yeah. What's the issue? These are man-made habitats. Why would anybody, you know, grouse about what we're doing with them? They're, they'll never be what they once were. They aren't what they once were. So the, the answer to this whole problem, which is, is we're going to hit it like a wall, but the cost of stocking continues to go up. License sales continue to go down. Anglers don't like paying more for their license. So at some point, you know, this whole house of cards falls and we need to start making some hard decisions. It's already happening. And the issue really needs to be if we're not going to have more fish to move around and we got more people looking for them, let's put them in fewer places so there's better fishing, stock fishing in fewer places, and let's let Mother Nature give us free fish where she can, you know. And I think most of us, if we can get past the camel's nose and the the emotional stuff would agree that, you know, we there's better ways to handle it. I mean, I grew up fishing for sunfish and pickerel. You know, it, yeah. it didn't bother yeah. me that, that they weren't rainbow trout. I was like, first time I saw a stock rainbow, I was like, oh, that's a really cool fish. But it wasn't like I lost sleep that I didn't have them. I, <laughs> yeah. I think most kids, yeah, yeah. Yeah, most kids don't yeah. care. Children, yeah, they yeah. just want, they you know, care. activity. No, they don't care. They right. want something tugging on the line. They... And, you know, I've seen some interesting things with kids with things like left to their own. They're not naturally harvester. They're not naturally looking to sluice those things onto a string or a bucket. You know, dad's teaching them that. And more often than not, when you ask a kid, you know, what do you want to do with that fish? And he kind of looks at it and goes, well, like, I don't know, let it go. I go, yeah, well, let's yeah. let it go. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. Exactly. Well, we're running, we've run out of time, basically, but I did want to kind of end the show with uh, a section of that you wrote in your book about what's the good news and what's the bad news facing Maine's fisheries. Can you kind of fill us in on that? You know, the good, yeah. yeah, good news is we've done less damage than most states. The good news is Maine is more native-centric than any state in the east and maybe any state in the country, cold water state. Bad news is we are under horrible non-native fish epidemic. Bass, smallmouth bass, pike, muskies, and, you know, and it's us that's doing it. I mean, this is not fish and game is responsible for moving rainbows, browns, you know, kokanees, whatever around, but they're not moving smallmouth bass, pike, and muskies around. Sportsmen are. And, and that's the bad news is Maine is going through right now what mass you know, New Hampshire, Vermont went through 50 years ago. And if we're not careful, the bulk of the nation's remaining big brook trout are going to be gone. Big lakes go down first. Everybody knows that. You know, find me a, a big lake that's in great shape. They tend to have the highest number of non-native species, bait fish, game fish, everything, buff fish, everything in between. And then, you know, when we're done screwing up our big lakes, we usually go to work on our rivers and then, you know, then our ponds and then our streams. So that's the threat. And having bounced around the country a lot, that's what I hope to prevent. 
I would love to be sitting in the clouds someday when I'm no longer on this earth looking down saying, wow, it's still there. You know, we've left this to our children. This is what we were gifted. And we not only owe the world to pass on what we were given, but my opinion, we owe them to correct as many mistakes as we can along the way. And, uh, you know, we can't fix everything, but we can fix something. And saving Maine's Arctic char, Maine's wild native brook trout, big brook trout. I mean, that's uh, getting the Atlantic salmon back. That's what we need to do. So, and on okay. a shameless promotion, can I give a shameless promotion? Book sure. promotion? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, com. signed books. All five of my books are on my website. Signed copies. We ship daily. And, uh, there you and go, folks. And, uh, yeah. There were a bunch of questions we didn't address during the show regarding flies, and we really didn't talk about that book that you wrote. So, Favorite Flies for Maine, 50 Essential Patterns from Local Experts. I'd pick that one up. <laughs> I'm sure that Bob has endorsed every fly in that book, so uh, that's where I would go. And uh, so that, armed with your Fly Fishing Maine book and Square Tail, I mean, what else is there to know, right, Bob? <laughs> it's all there in my town book, actually, <laughs> covers Rangeley. And, you know, there as you for go. unanswered questions, unanswered questions, bobmallard58 at gmail.com. I'll answer anything you want to forward. And, there you uh, go. There, that's people, a, a nice point gift. people in the right yeah. direction. All right. All right. Well, let's wind this up. I do have a few things you have to cover, but if you'll stick with me, Bob, I'm going to uh, – Give away your book, Fly Fishing Maine, and we're going to be asking a question of the audience to see whoever answers it first correctly will win your book, so courtesy of Stackpole Books. So um, hang tight for just a minute, and we will we will be giving those away. We'll also be giving away a one-year membership to Trout Unlimited and a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International. So uh, we'll take care of that in just the next few minutes. Do you travel to fish? Medical and security emergencies happen. When they do, you can rely on Global Rescue, the world's leading membership organization, providing integrated medical, security, travel risk, and crisis response services to travelers worldwide. Without Global Rescue membership, an emergency evacuation could cost you more than $100,000. That's why over 1 million members trust Global Rescue to get them home when the worst happens. Don't travel without Global Rescue. Memberships start at just $129. Learn more about Global Rescue's program. Just click on Global Rescue icon in the footer of Ask About Fly Fishing, or there's also one in the right-hand column on our homepage, and that will take you to their site, and you can check it all out there. And just a reminder to everyone, before you leave the website tonight, please take a minute and give us your feedback about the show. You can find a link on our homepage in the section under tonight's show that says, what did you think of this show? Just click on that link and leave your comments. We'd really appreciate it. Now it's time to give away some prizes. So the winners of our drawings are randomly selected from the show's registration database. If you didn't register for tonight's show, it's too late now, but make sure you do for the next show so you have a chance to win some of these great prizes. If you are the lucky winner, we'll contact you after the show and provide you with the information on how to receive your prize. So the first thing we'll be giving away is a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International. And you can find out more about Fly Fishers International by going to flyfishersinternational.org. And let me uh, 
Let me get my database going here. And um, all right, looks like uh, looks like our winner is Joel Mofsonson. Mofsonson, and Joel is from New York. Joel, congratulations, winning that one-year membership to Fly Fishers International. Now we'll give away a one-year membership to Trout Unlimited. Learn more about Trout Unlimited, go to tu.org, tu.org. That's an easy one to remember. And let's see here. Our winner is going to be Chrissy Clapp, Chrissy Clapp, and um, she's in California. And uh, congratulations, Chrissy. So enjoy your membership to uh, Trout Unlimited. So now it's time to give away Bob Mallett's book, Fly Fishing Main, courtesy of Stackpole Books. Stackpolebooks.com if you'd like to find out more about books that they offer. Or go to Bob's site if you'd like to find out about all the books that Bob's written. Let me see here. Now I just have to clear my queue here. Okay. All right. So question is, and we didn't really talk about this too much tonight, but the when we were listing out the top fish species that are available in Maine, what was number three? What was number three? Tell me the name of the fish, the species that was the third in line that Bob mentioned tonight. So, uh, Bob, we got to wait a few seconds. It takes a few seconds for them. To, uh, there's a delay for them to hear me, and then we'll... Um, then we'll announce the winner. There was a question. Maybe you can answer this while we're waiting for this. There were a couple of questions from Phil McCartney about the uh, striped bass fishery. How's that holding up in Maine? You know, it's down like everybody else's. Seems okay. like in my 64 years on this earth, um, all we can do with stripers is bounce them up, bounce them down, bounce them up, bounce them down, make the same mistakes over and over again. And so the good news is, the bad news is they're down. The good news is that everybody's talking about it, which means there'll be changes coming. But with that said, one beach I used to fish is terrible, but I stumbled on some flats recently that I weighed with a crab that were outstanding. So they're there. They're on, you know, a bit of a down, but they're there. And it can be quite fun. And as I said earlier, Casco Bay, that's where you want to be. Okay. All right. And it looks like we had, I didn't think this one was going to be that tough, but uh, so here's the answers that came in. First, we had Arctic char. No. Uh, bass. Not specific enough. Uh, <laughs> Arctic char. Striped bass. And then we think, I think I have the winner here, which is smallmouth bass. And that's the one you listed as number three, correct, Bob? Yes, yes, it's um, and it's and, been popular in Maine for longer than people think. Yeah, and that's going to be Lefty, Lefty Cray's favorite smallmouth fishery was in Maine, and it's in my book. Really? Okay. And Lefty's cool. favorite fish were smallmouth. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So Tom Zim Zim Zimna Zimna Zimina Zimina. <laughs> I'm trying to destroy your last name there, Tom. You did a pretty good <laughs> job, aren't I? <laughs> so, uh, Tom, you are the winner. Please send me your address, your shipping address. Send it in the same place that you answered the question. 
got your email address, got your name, just need your shipping address, and we'll get that book shipped off to you from uh, Stackpole Books. So thanks for paying attention and playing. And I'm just looking. The next one is char next to everybody but char, then Atlantic salmon. Wow, another Arctic char, another Arctic char, salmon. So he was the only one that got it right. <laughs> so congratulations, and uh, glad you were able to, to help us out and play with that. Bob, I just want to thank you for being on the show tonight, taking your time out. I know we talked earlier, it's late out on the East Coast, <laughs> but uh, you made it through in, in good form. So thank you so much for being on the show again. Thanks for having me. It's always fun, and hopefully we'll get back again. Yeah, sounds good. Sounds good. Hopefully all of you have found the podcast archive on our website, and if you haven't, just look for the link on the top line menu. In the archive, you'll find all of our past shows, over 365 shows that you can search by keyword, keyword phrase, or whatever. Just go ahead and uh, explore, and I think you'll be pleasantly surprised at what you discover there. Our next broadcast will be January 18th, 7 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Eastern Time, and on that show, I will interview Kevin Howell, and our topic for the show will be Great Smoky Mountains Fly Fishing. Kevin Howell has been guiding the rivers and streams of western North Carolina and eastern Tennessee since the mid-1980s. Kevin considers the Davidson River, the, Tuscan, the Tuckasegee River, and many small mountain streams as his home waters. Join us to talk about fly fishing in the Great Smoky Mountains and find out which flies Kevin favors for those waters. Be sure to add this upcoming show to your calendar. Just click the Add to Calendar button and under Kevin's photo on our homepage, and you'll be all set and add it right to your calendar there. We'd like to thank Fly Fishers International, Trout Unlimited, Stackpole Books, Muskie Town, Global Rescue, Gills Fly Fishing International, and Lee's Ferry for sponsoring our show tonight. Don't forget to visit our website at askaboutflyfishing.com and make sure you're signed up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of your future broadcasts. Thanks for listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. That's it. Good night, everyone, and good fishing.